The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. It's 22 chapters long, this book, which makes it one of the longest books in the New Testament, which is very significant. There's a lot of content there that God wants us to know. And so it's a book that shouldn't be neglected, but unfortunately many times is for a lot of different reasons. But uh, we would treat Revelation like any other book in the New Testament, like Romans and uh, the Gospel of John and even Old Testament books. It's on the exact same equal par. It is inspired scripture God gave to us as a treasure to communicate his eternal mind and information for this life and also the future. So it's absolutely vital uh, that we study all the counsel of God, and that includes the book of Revelation. Right now we're in chapter 14, and we've been going about a chapter at a time, which is somewhat of a rapid pace. And there's that's a deliberate choice on my part. I want to get out of the tribulation. I don't feel comfortable there uh, as a member of the church. and But at the same time, we're just dealing with uh, visions John is having that really can't be taken apart and chopped up and uh, going real slow because then you lose the continuity of his visions that came. So there's, there is a, a, a flow that is necessary and demands that kind of attention in the book of Revelation uh, as we're going through because many things are happening in a rapid fire like manner. So we want to represent the visions that John had. Before we get to Revelation chapter 14, which I would say is around between the mid time of the future tribulation and the end, where we're at and we're going to look at some information in revelation 14 that is fulfilling very specific prophecies predictions made by god in the old testament can't look at all of them but just some foundational ones are key so i'd direct you to psalm chapter 2 because this is referenced very specifically in revelation 14 as a fulfillment of prophecy i believe that psalm 2 just about all of it, or most of it, I should say, is still future. There is some that was relevant pertaining to Christ's first coming and his incarnation. But the bulk of it is probably future, still future, yet future, uh, being fulfilled during the time of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation, and the second coming of Jesus Christ and even the millennium. And so I want to highlight a couple of verses in Psalm 2. If this was written by David then that means it was written 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. So 1,000 years plus before John wrote his uh, book of Revelation. And it starts out, why are the nations in an uproar? And the nations refers to unbelievers who were alive at that time on earth. It's a future prophecy. So it's referring to rebellious, ungodly people in the future during the time of the tribulation in particular. There is an uproar. There is a a consolidation of power to rebel against God and his people. It is worldwide. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain or futile, wicked thing? They're devising plans against God and his people. The kings of the earth, these are wicked kings, take their stand. The rulers take counsel together in a devious way. What are they doing? They're making plans, devious plans, against the Lord, against Yahweh, against God, and against his anointed, the Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. That's God. God is looking down at this futility, these devious, rebellious world leaders in the future, and he laughs because they're pathetic. They're not going to accomplish their wicked task. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He's going to allow them to do all these wicked things for a seven-year period during the tribulation. It's going to highlight in the last three and a half years, and then there will be a stop to it, and that's what it's talking about. God's going to put a stop to their wickedness at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, He will speak to them in his anger. This is holy anger of God. And he will terrify them in his holy fury, his fury which is holy. Verse 6, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So in the future, at the end of the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennium, God the Father is going to install Jesus Christ to reign as king on the earth. That's what it means. I am going to, I have installed the anointed one, the Messiah, on my holy mountain, upon Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a real historical place mentioned 162 times in the Old Testament. 
And it always is related to the historical, physical, literal city of Jerusalem and a mountain that resides there. It is not spiritual. It's not referring to heaven. It is on earth. Mount Zion. So in the future, God the Father is going to install Jesus Christ as king, as the anointed one, in Jerusalem on the mount. That is the beginning of the millennium. That is described in Revelation as well as other many Old Testament passages. God says, I have, uh, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. So that's a picture. That is a prophecy of God the Father at the end of the millennium installing King Jesus, who will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, literally on the earth for 1,000 years in holiness. And he's going to reign with his saints, those who know him. Let's look at one more prophecy, and that would be Zechariah. Zechariah is at the very end of your Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, just before Malachi, the last book. And at the very end of Zechariah, even though it's only 14 chapters, Zechariah has more prophecies that are specific about the coming Messiah than any other book in the Old Testament save Isaiah. So it's loaded with details of the coming of Messiah. Uh, and then chapter, it kind of climaxes in Revel, uh, Zechariah chapter 14. So let's look there. Behold, a day is coming. Behold, it's a grand day, an amazing day, an unprecedented day, or really time period is what it's talking about in history. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is talking about how all the nations around the world are going to rise up in a consolidated manner against the nation of Israel because they hate the Jews and the Israelites. This is talking about uh, the future seven-year tribulation. This is when this is going to happen. All the Gentile nations of the world are going to rally, spearheaded by the Antichrist and his prophet, against the little teeny nation of Israel. And notice, they're not doing it on their own. God sovereignly is in charge. He knows this is going to happen. He's actually orchestrating all of this because God is the one that says He's going to bring them against Jerusalem for battle. And the city of Jerusalem will be captured. The houses of the Jews will be plundered. The women will be ravished. One translation says the women will be raped. That's what it means. During the time of the tribulation, especially at the end of the tribulation, the world is going to come in a very evil manner and they are going to persecute the Jews like never before in history. God's going to protect many of them, but some of them aren't going to be protected there in Jerusalem as they're still living there. And there's going to be women there. And they're going to be ravished. They're going to be raped. They're going to be beaten uh, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So that's the time of the tribulation. It won't go on forever. The Lord will intervene. He's the Savior. Verse 3, Israel is the apple of His eye. Then the Lord, or Yahweh, will go forth and fight. He's going to fight on behalf of His people at the end. He's going to fight those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Verse 4, and in that day, that's a general time period. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time of the tribulation. And in that day, at the end of the seven-year tribulation is what it's referring to, in that day, His feet, that is the Lord, that is Jesus Christ the Messiah, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Literally. Jesus, that's his second return. He's going to come out of the sky. He is going to land on the Mount of Olives and intervene on behalf of his people. That's described in Revelation 19. This is the prophecy right here on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, also known as Mount Zion, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. When Jesus lands, when God of the universe lands on earth, he creates an earthquake like never before. And that's exactly what's going to happen. This is literal. This has not been fulfilled yet. This is going to be fulfilled in the future at the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is fulfilled in Revelation 14. And that's what we're going to be looking at. One more verse I want to read, and that is Matthew 24. Go ahead and look at that in the New Testament. Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus just before his death, the week that he died. He gave this extended overview of the end times to warn the people of Israel, to warn believers of that time, the seven-year tribulation that Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And chapter 24 is almost chronological in terms of the details that are going to happen regarding the, the Great Tribulation. And Jesus says there's going to be a 
a preliminary period of trial called birth pangs. And then at the midpoint, the abomination begins the great tribulation for the last three and a half years. And in Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus says this, During the time of the tribulation, then they will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you. He's talking to, about believers, and especially some Jewish believers at that time. Those who hate God, led by the Antichrist, they're going to find you, they're going to kill you during the time of the tribulation. They will persecute you, uh, give you to tribulation, they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Verse 16 during this time, especially after the midpoint of the tribulation, Jesus gives a special warning. And he says, at that time, midpoint, of, when the Antichrist is revealed, then let those who are in Judea flee, run, run to the mountains, hide. Well, that's going to be particularly difficult for women and especially women with children in the future, isn't it? And Jesus knows that he's sympathetic to that. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's why he says in verse 19, but woe to those who are with child. Woe to the pregnant women. He's got compassion on them. It's going to be difficult for them to flee. And also in light of Zechariah 14, where many women are going to be ravished, raped by these evil people. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. So he's giving a warning of what it's going to be like. That takes us to Revelation 14. Uh, that's quite sobering. Uh, but I want to hear the truth. Whether it's good news or bad news, sobering or encouraging, our best defense is knowing the truth and to be able to plan accordingly ahead of time. So now we come to Revelation 14. Uh, just by way of reminder, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, which was a few weeks ago or last month, uh, the seventh trumpet sounded. Remember, in Revelation is all laid out beautifully prophetically in these judgments of God, the seven seals that we already saw that are start at the beginning of the tribulation. And then there's the seven trumpets that are actually inside the sixth seal. And a lot of the seven trumpet judgments happen around the midpoint of the seven year tribulation. And then that seventh trumpet is blown. That's the last trumpet, Revelation eleven fifteen. And out of the seven trumpets come seven bowls of God's wrath that happen at the end of the seven year tribulation. And so uh, pretty much from chapter 12, 13, and 14, this is all stuff happening or laying the groundwork of stuff that's going to happen at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation culminating at the end of the tribulation. So that's just kind of the historical context of where we're at in the tribulation. And before uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out in Revelation 16, which is at the end of the tribulation, God is giving a lot of preliminary details. He's giving some warning and exhortations. He's also giving encouragement, especially for the saints who are going to be alive living during the time of the tribulation to encourage them to know this isn't going to go on forever. There, there's an ending here. Not only is there an ending, there's a, a glorious ending for those who know Jesus Christ personally so that they can be encouraged and, and live one more day and trust God and, and persevere to the end to receive that good news. And so you've got 12, 13, and 14 are actually kind of like an interlude uh, or a commercial or a parenthesis, a little break to kind of lay the foundation and the groundwork for the rest of the book of Revelation that really goes into chronological detail of the last part of the tribulation, which is chapter 16, really all the way to the end of chapter 22. Uh, so we're kind of in a parenthesis uh, right now, laying the foundation. And, and actually chapters 12, 13, and 14 go together in these visions and signs that John is having uh, before he gets to the details of the seven bull judgments. Uh, chapter 12, we saw the main theme was the dragon, that is Satan and his part in the seven-year tribulation, especially at the end. And then we saw chapter 13, which was about the two beasts, which is the rise of the Antichrist and his henchmen, the false prophet, and how they're going to be involved in the tribulation, especially the last three and a half years. And so we get, we're talking about Satan in chapter 12, and it's ugly and scary. And then chapter 13, these beasts and persecution and warring with the saints. And it's like, we need a, we need a breath. Of fresh air, we need some encouragement, and that's why God gives us chapter 14, because it is. It's a, a dramatic break in contrast from chapters 12 and 13. It's a beautiful contrast. And the main character in chapter 14 is the Lamb, the Lamb that is Jesus Christ glorified. And this is, chapter is to encourage the believers in this contrast. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 14. I'm just going to look at the first 13 verses today, and then we'll pick up next week with the rest of the chapter. Um, 
And so I, I call this the final warning. This is God's final warning, really, for humanity during that time. Like I said, this is sometime between the mid-tribulation going towards the end and God being a gracious God, a saving God, a merciful God. God is grieved when people perish not knowing Him. It is, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the heart of God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says God in the book of Ezekiel. God is a saving God, a gracious God. He's provided an avenue and an opportunity to be saved. He's laid out a plan. It's not impossible. A very clear plan. It's called the good news. So God's heart is a saving God, although he's a holy God. And so this is God's heart here in chapter 14, these last warnings to these rebellious people at the end of the age. You can still turn and repent and be saved. And we're going to see that as he lays it out. So it is an encouraging chapter. I broke it up into three parts or three points that I want to highlight. And let's go ahead and look at the first point there. And that's verses 1 through 5 that I call a unique reward to the faithful in verses 1 through 5. It does highlight a, re- a special reward and blessing in the midst of all this uh, evil that's going on and Satan and his activity and persecution. There is good news. There's a unique reward to the faithful during the time of the tribulation and a highlight here that John gives us through the Holy Spirit of God, a blessing is the millennial glory that they'll have with Christ. That is the unique reward for believers is millennial glory. Millennial is, means a thousand, 1,000 years. And Revelation says Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. He says it six, six times, a thousand years. Pastor Cliff, do you believe that the millennium is a literal 1,000 years? Well, God says it's a thousand years six times in Revelation 20. If he said it one time, I would believe it. So if he says it six, I really, 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 really believe it. So yes, it is a literal 1,000 years. And so that's what I believe uh, Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is. It's kind of a, a peek into the future of where this is all going. Don't be discouraged, believers. Don't be discouraged, saints. Despite all this persecution and evil, uh, the good, good day is coming. The good news is coming. The exaltation of Christ with his saints in glory at the end of the tribulation for 1,000 years in millennial glory as fulfilled in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Let's go ahead and look at it. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, and I'll read and then we'll make some comments. So John continues to have these visions that he's seeing. First, Satan, the red dragon, and then the beast, the Antichrist, and then the false prophet and how they're going to uh, go after Israel and try to wipe out Israel. And they're not going to be successful. And Satan is furious, and so is the Antichrist. And they're going to try to make the whole world worship the Antichrist and Satan with this mark that they're going to force on people, either on their wrist or their forehead, literally. And the Antichrist is going to control all of planet Earth. But there's good news. It won't go on forever. It ends, verse 14, starting at verse 1. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 people, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So here's a unique reward to the faithful. The faithful are the 144,000. The 144,000 we saw in Revelation chapter 7, at about the midpoint of the tribulation, God blew the whistle as the referee and stopped everything and said, stop, stop all the judgment, stop all the activity. We're not going to go on in the seven-year tribulation with all of this judgment until I seal or protect 144,000 special people. And that's delineated in Revelation 7. And so the mark of God, the seal of God was impressed or put on these 144,000 Jewish men. They will be protected in the future. They will be on earth, literal people, literal Jews from specific tribes, protected by God. And they're going to get the seal of the living God. The seal that they receive is the name of the, the Father and of Jesus Christ. The seal was the word used for an imprint that you put on something, whether it's hot wax or slaves were branded with 
seals. And what it does, it shows ownership and it shows authority. And what it says is God is going to protect these 144,000 Jewish men in a very special way for his purposes. They are called in Revelation 7, servants, doulos, slaves of God. They do his bidding. That is their task. For three and a half years, slaves of God, representing him, protected by him. They have a passion for Jesus Christ and a passionate, spirit-filled, obedient, fired-up believer in Jesus Christ shares the gospel wherever they go. And that's what these guys are going to do. And they're going to be protected by God in a special way. And they're actually going to be able to live through the three and a half years of tribulation. And Satan and the Antichrist are going to come after them. And God's going to supernaturally protect them at least to the end of that three and a half year period. And it's going to culminate at the coming of Jesus Christ where Jesus Christ is going to gather these 144,000 Jewish men to himself and give them special recognition as those who have been redeemed out of or purchased out of the great tribulation. And they will be by Jesus' side when he is ready to reign in glory for 1,000 years on earth as King, no, President Jesus. And they will be his co-regents, his those who co-reign with him. That's the great privilege that these 144,000 have. Let's go ahead and look at the text and highlight some things there. And I looked, John says, and behold, man, you know, I saw a lot of bad news, but man, I saw some glorious news. Behold, check this out. You will never believe this. That's a good modern vernacular translation of the word behold. It's a great word because we pass it over. Ah, behold, behold, whatever. Old King James stuff. No, behold, you will never believe it. You should believe it. It's awesome. And behold, I looked and behold, the lamb, the lamb. He just got finished talking about one that looked like a lamb that had two horns was very evil. That was a counterfeit Christ. Not a lamb looked like a lamb, some religious figure. This is the lamb. This is Jesus. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God. Lamb, that referred to one thing in the mind of a Jew, and that was a sacrifice to appease the holy wrath of God, a sacrifice that enabled people to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus is the incarnate, eternal Lamb of God. And He's not just a dead Lamb, as the Old Testament Lamb. He was the living Lamb. This is a resurrection truth. Not just a sacrificial truth, but resurrection life. Jesus reigns alive as the Lamb. And what a contrast of the Lamb of the last two chapters and the main characters there. Chapter 12, the main character, a seven-headed, ghastly-looking dragon, draconian dragon. How evil is that? And then in chapter 13, it's no better. These two beasts, one with seven heads and another one, evil. And then you've got the Lamb. The Lamb, precious, gentle, approachable. Great contrast. And, and John is contrasting all throughout here. You've got truth and you've got the counterfeit. That is always true in religion with truth. If you've got the truth, you have a counterfeit. Jesus is the truth. So he's the lamb. He was standing. Another significant contrast here because at the other characters we saw in chapter 13, the Antichrist, or for, no, first it starts with the dragon was angry, furious, moving, and standing on the sand of the sea. What is sand? Unstable. Lacking stability. That's Satan. That's in, that's in contrast. Even the verb use of uh, Revelation 14.1 where the lamb, the lamb is standing firmly, perfect tense, firmly footed. He ain't moving. And he's not on sand. He is on God's holy, precious mountain for 4,000 years of history. Now, 6,000 years of history, Mount Zion. That is the hub of God's operations on earth. Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion. That's where Jesus reigns from. A place of stability. He is standing there. He is firmly planted. He is not moving. He is the rock. It's a contrast from the dragon who stands on the sea and then the beast, it says, coming up out of the water. He has no home. He's roaming as the Antichrist. And then the other beast who uh, comes from out of the earth. He has no stability either. He has no identity. And then there's the lamb firmly footed on God's mountain, Mount Zion. Like I said earlier, this is, uh, by the way, verse 1 in chapter 14 is a scene that happens on earth in the future. You need to note that because verses 2 and 3 happen in heaven. And a lot of people and commentators confuse that. Some will try to tell us that verse 1 is happening in heaven. It is not happening in heaven. It is on earth. It's in fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, New Testament prophecies, sorry, Matthew chapter 6 prophecy. This is happening on earth. Earth, Revelation 5.10, this is on the earth. 
Mount Zion is on the earth 162 times. Mount Zion is referred to in the Old Testament. It is always 100% of the time in relation to the historical Jerusalem. Mount Zion, God's mountain. It is literal. It is on earth. Jesus is there. He has landed in fulfillment of Zechariah 14. He is there. He is firmly footed. He is ready to rule. He is ready to battle and squash his enemies. He is with 144,000 precious ones that he saved, that he sealed, that he's going to rule with for a thousand years. Verse 2, and it says, I heard a voice from heaven. This is, a, this is future. This is prophecy as John is looking to the future. At the beginning of the millennium, as the 144,000 are redeemed as first fruits of many redeemed who will go into the millennium with Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you will go into the millennium with Jesus Christ and reign with him. That's what we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 27, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. If you are an overcomer, that means if you're a Christian, you know Jesus in this life. If you are an overcomer, then you will rule with Jesus Christ with a rod of iron. That's kingly authority. Or as a prince or a princess, as a vice regent of Jesus, you will rule with him. And then in Revelation 3.21, it said you will get to sit on his throne and rule with him. And then Revelation 5.10 said that rule is on the earth. And then Revelation 24 through 6 says that that rule is for a thousand years. It's amazing. This is too good to be true, it seems like, isn't it? But it is true. This is what we have to look forward to. This is so encouraging. That's why I love the book of Revelation. It is so encouraging. My future is secure in Christ. And in an incredibly awesome way. This is a glorious truth. So that the glorious truth is being celebrated in heaven ahead of time with this, this angelic choir that is just booming and thunderous. They're celebrating the victory of Christ with His people and the prospect of a millennium. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and the, uh, like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They can hear that music from the Who's down in Whoville. How glorious is that? Harpists harping on their harps. Guitars, electric guitars in heaven. Cool! Stringed instruments, that's what they're doing. These are angels. Verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. The four living creatures were the seraphim or there's seven uh, or those six winged angels that guard the holiness of God who are around the throne and the elders, which are not angels, but are glorified men of some special class that are also around the throne of God. Looking upon his holiness and there's all this music going on. God loves music. God loves the hymns. God loves those old hymns. I got old time religion. But do you know what? God likes the new songs too. He likes contemporary music. Some of it. It's got to be good music. God loves music. It's loud. He's cranking it up. This is why when I'm driving in my car, I got to crank up. The windows are booming. Actually, it's kind of dangerous. But uh, anyway, it's loud music. God loves it. He loves all good music, good holy music. They're, the angels are singing. They are rejoicing. They are celebrating. I love this phrase, a new song. Sing a new song, says the book of Isaiah. Sing a new song unto the Lord. Six times the Psalms say, sing a new song unto the Lord. Should we have contemporary music in the church? What's contemporary music? It is. They are new songs celebrating the work of God right now in the life of His people. Absolutely, we should have new songs. What a great testimony. God isn't just confined to hymns. By the way, hymns only represent, you know, post-1800s anyway. What about the first 1800 years? How come we're not singing some of those, like those Gregarian chants? God wants a new song. A new song is simply a testimony of somebody who is alive on planet Earth singing to God from their heart because of a new thing that He's done in their life. He's answered prayer. He's worked a miracle. He saved a soul. The fact that we are called to sing new songs means we, we serve a living God. His works go on continually all throughout history. We need to have new songs and even more new songs. And the new songs that were new five years ago, they're old. We need more new songs. They're singing a new song. This is up in heaven. It's a special song because the angels or, the, or whoever's singing this song, not everybody can know it. It's, it's hard to, uh, the, whatever it is, whether it's the tune or whatever, or the lyrics are being taught specifically to the 144,000. This is their song. And they are learning this song. And they're going to celebrate with this song. A time of celebration. Uh, they sang a new song before the throne, before God. Uh, no one could learn the song except... See, you're not the only one that is not musically inclined. No one could learn the new song except the 144,000 
who had been purchased from the earth. Another good word that's synonymous with purchased from the earth is rescued from the earth. It means the context is they were rescued out of the tribulation, whether they died in the midst of the tribulation and then were rescued by going to heaven or whether they made it through the three and a half years at the end of the tribulation and then were rescued by God at the end at the coming of Jesus Christ. Not quite sure because it doesn't give us the details. The point is they were redeemed, purchased, or rescued out of the tribulation. They were rescued from the dragon of Revelation 12. They were rescued from the Antichrist of chapter 13. And they are installed with Messiah to reign for a thousand years. They were rescued. And they're celebrating it with song. It's awesome. Why do we sing in church? We sing for this reason. To give glory to God through song. God is a musical being. We were made in His image. We are inherently musical beings. And God loves to be worshipped and praised through song. And that's what they're doing here up in heaven. Uh, verse 4, he gets specific. Well, tell us more about these 144,000. Well, during the course of the tribulation, and especially the last part of the tribulation, they were very faithful to God. Uh, gives us details. These are the ones who have, been, who have not been defiled with women. It means they did not commit sexual immorality. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, that during the time of the tribulation, it's going to be given over to licentiousness and wickedness. Sexual immorality will be the norm. That's why these guys are going to stand out. They're not going to be given over to sexual immorality. They're going to be morally pure. That's just going to be unheard of in the future. Uh, they haven't been defiled with women. It doesn't mean they don't like women. It's emphasizing illegitimate sex outside the context of marriage. That's what it's talking about. So they're going to be morally pure. Why? For they have kept themselves chaste, says the New American Standard. Literally, it's the, for they are parthenoi, for they are virgins. Same word Mary was, a virgin, a parthenos. That's the literal word. So they probably don't get married. They're probably celibate. They don't get married. Is God demeaning marriage here? Absolutely not. Marriage is a good thing. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It is not good for a man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. Marriage is good. As a matter of fact, marriage is the norm. Not being married is the exception for whatever reason. Maybe you have the gift of singleness. Uh, or there are other reasons why people are single from a biblical point of view as a Christian. Uh, but Paul did tell us in 1 Corinthians 7 that there are times to consider singleness in a unique and special way during special times in history or what's going on in the world. And Paul said during times of distress, when, when hardship is very difficult... If you have the gift of singleness, that might be a good time to re refrain from getting married. Because if you get married, you might have a family. And if you have a family, you might have multiple children. You might have seven children. And then if it's in the middle of the tribulation or at the end, you're subjecting your children to persecution like never seen before. We saw that in Zechariah. So that's why God keeps these men celibate and they don't engage in marriage. I think because of where it's at in history. This terrible time. Uh... So that's why they are parthenoi. They are virgins. They are celibate. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So during the tribulation, they're just going to be faithful to Jesus. Uh, these have been purchased or redeemed from among men as first fruits. First fruits, they're just set apart from God in a special way, a unique group of men and to the Lamb. And, and no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. So they're just, they're, they're willing to tell the truth, even at a great cost. So they're faithful to God. So that's point number one. That is just a glorious picture, a unique reward to the faithful 144,000 Jews in the future that they get to partake in the millennial reign with Christ because of their faithfulness. Uh, let's look at point number two, and that's the last warning. The last warning to tribulation unbelievers. God has something to say to believers during the tribulation, but he also has something to say to unbelievers, rebels during the tribulation. Damnation before the angels is what they face if they reject Christ and his gospel during that time as he makes one last appeal and call. And that's 6 through 11. Let me read 6 through 11. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And the angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who was, has made the nations 
drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. Wow. This is God's last warning and he's doing it with angels. And Jesus promised in Matthew 25 that at the end of the age, during his judgment, to execute that judgment, he would delegate a lot of this authority to his angels. You got angels all over the place in Revelation 14. Angel in verse 6, angel in verse 8, angel in verse 9, angel in verse 17, another angel verse 18, another angel verse 15. Doing God's bidding at the end of the age, at a time of judgment. So just some highlights regarding this uh, final warning to unbelievers on earth at the time. Uh, verse 6 says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Another angel, the last angel we saw was Michael the archangel in chapter 12. So this is another angel of heaven doing God's bidding. He's flying in mid-heaven, high point, where the whole world can see him. Nobody's going to be left out of this message. It's a universal message, flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth even to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So this message is, is the entire earth. Nobody will be left out. God will supernaturally make sure that everybody has one more chance to hear. Because we consistently hear that uh, question from people, and particularly unbelievers. Well, what if they don't get an opportunity to hear? Well, these people will. The whole earth will. God will guarantee they hear. Nobody's dying, perishing, and unbelief as a result of ignorance here. It's for those who live on the earth. What is he doing? What is this angel doing? He's one last call. He is preaching proclamation to cry out. That's God's ongoing means and medium of communicating biblical truth is preaching. Not going to show a video just because it's at the end of the age. He is going to preach. Jesus came to preach. Preachers preach. The world thinks preaching is foolishness. But this angel is going to preach. What's he going to preach? He's going to preach the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's good news. It's good news. What is the good news? Uh, he doesn't exhaust the gospel. We know what the gospel is. But part of that is fear God and give him glory. He's the creator. Fear God, calling everybody to fear God and give him glory. That's a Hebrew idiom for repent. Re actually, repent and believe. That is inherent in the gospel. That's what's being proclaimed, calling everybody. Repent and believe. Repent from your sin and believe in the creator. And judge. That's the gospel, verse uh, 7. Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. You need to be saved, was what it's saying. You need to be saved. An unbeliever needs to understand they need to be saved. A lot of unbelievers say, I don't need any salvation. I don't need to be saved from anything. Yeah, you do. From your sin, from a devil that is real, from death which we will face, and from hell which we will go to if you don't repent. You need to be saved. And that's what this message is. That's the gospel. And God can save you. Jesus can save you. And you can't save yourself by your own good works. It is by faith, by grace to the gracious creator, Savior God. Turn to him, repent, believe, give him glory, believe. And when you do believe, the end of verse 7 says, worship him. An unbeliever can't worship him. So you've got to repent first, then believe, then you can worship and give him his due as a believer. So God is calling people to believe and worship him. And it's through the timeless gospel. This is not the eternal gospel it's called here. This isn't some different gospel that hyper-dispensationalists tell us, well, this is a different kind of gospel that will be preached only uniquely during the time of the tribulation and has nothing to do with the gospel we preach now or the gospel of Paul or the gospel of Jesus. No, baloney. It's the same gospel. There is one gospel. It's the eternal gospel. The gospel goes by many names. In the New Testament, the gospel is called the gospel of peace, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the glorious gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel of your salvation. One eternal gospel. And that's what's being preached here. It, it is good news. You can be saved. Come to Jesus. He will save you. It's awesome. God is a gracious God. He's reaching out. But unfortunately, a lot of these people are so hardened, they're going to reject the gospel. They're going to reject everything that's happening. They'd rather have the rocks fall on them and kill them rather than repent and give God the glory. We know that. We've seen it in Revelation 6. 
That's why God has to send another warning. Okay, fine. If you're not going to believe verse 8, another angel, a second one from heaven followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, fallen. That is a curse. That is emphatic. Okay, if you're not going to believe, just want you to know the destiny of your central headquarters, which is Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is the origin of all false religion that started in Genesis 10. False religion started in Babylon over by Iraq and false religion is going to end and culminate in world history in Babylon, literally Babylon, literally in the area of Iraq, literally in the Middle East. That's where all false religion comes from. And God says, fine, okay, you, you're not going to worship the true God. You're going to worship false religion and false religion is doomed. It will get you nowhere. It can't save you. Hence the warning, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great was the word that Nebuchadnezzar used in Daniel 4 when he referred to his kingdom, Babylon the Great. Look what I have built. Babylon. Well, it's not great. Uh, this place has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of immorality. It's just typified by immorality and rebellion. It's doomed. Don't trust in it. Verse 9. And another angel, a third one from God, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, that would be the Antichrist, and his image, literally an icon or statue, and receives the mark on his forehead, 666, on the forehead or on the hand during that time in the tribulation, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. You will be judged by God severely judged on earth while you're there in unbelief and judged eternally in hell forever because that's what he goes on to say verse 10 by the way revelation 14 verse 10 is one of the most specific sobering verses in the entire bible on hell and its literal implications it's scary we need to be saved from hell do we tell unbelievers they need to be saved from hell that's what i tell them that'd be one of the main things i tell them i remember when i was in college and the president of ywam came and was I mean, was speaking to the student body at a college I was at in Santa Barbara. And he said, whatever you do when you go out and evangelize, don't tell unbelievers there's a hell. And I was a brand new Christian. I was thinking, wow, that doesn't seem to make sense. Because I know when I was, I just became a Christian and I was so glad that I was saved from hell. I wanted to tell everybody. So we needed to tell people they can be saved from hell because it's a real place. Jesus talked about it more than anybody, taught on it more than anybody, said it was real. And here it's described as being real. Here, What is hell like? Well, he says, uh, unbelievers will drink from the wrath of God. He is a holy God. He is righteously angry. He's angry at sin and unrepentance. Uh, this future judgment isn't, isn't going to be restrained by anything. It's going to be the undiluted, unmitigated wrath of God poured out in its full fury, like a, a big basin on unbelievers of those who don't believe. And whoever does not believe will be tormented. That is a strong word. This is talking about in hell. They will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. That is humiliation. That is utter humiliation. Not just physical pain, but utter humiliation. This is eternal hell. He will be tormented with... There is no purgatory. This is eternal hell. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of the judge. Jesus will be there so that people can look at him to see who they rejected and why they are in hell. Because Jesus provided a way of escape. He offered himself to be saved from hell and they chose not to. Verse 11, hell is eternal and the smoke of their torment goes up of those who are in hell to God forever and ever. It is endless. Hell is eternal. And they have no rest day and night. It's torment. Some people, dead, see in hell, party, keg. No, I don't think so. There is no party. It is endless torment. There is no rest. There is no peace. You're not with anybody. You are in isolation. There's no rest day and night for those who worship the beast in his image or whoever receives the mark of his name. His name. Notice they, got, they went to hell because of their choice. Their own volition. They are accountable. They are responsible. That's hell. Here's a summarized theology of hell according to the New Testament and other verses. Hell is. Hell is future. Hell is a real place. Hell was created by God. It says Matthew 10. Jesus said that. Hell is physical. People who go to hell are going to go there and resurrected eternal physical bodies. Hell is unbearable pain and torment. Hell is conscious. You will be mindful. It's not soul sleep. Hell is irrevocable. It can't be undone. It's not purgatory. Hell happens upon death. 
Everybody dies and then they are judged, either heaven or hell. Hell is isolation. Hell is dark. Hell is purposeful. God has a purpose with hell. That's one of the questions people raise. And one of the critiques against Christianity, the problem of evil. Well, why? If God was a loving God, why did, why is there a hell? He'd get rid of it if he was a loving God. No, you don't know the biblical God. Because the, the God of the Bible, the real God of the universe, he is a, he is a loving God and a merciful God and a forgiving God. And that's why he gave Jesus so you could be forgiven of your sin and not go to hell. So that's true. He is a loving God. But if that's your sole definition of God, then you have a a deficient view of God. Because God isn't just loving. He is also holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He is just. He is a judge. He is the creator. He is righteous. That's why there is a hell. That's why he created hell. And that's why hell is eternal. But it will serve an eternal purpose to let us know what God is like. God is a holy God. God is a judging God. God is a God of justice. God is also a God of mercy and forgiveness because he saved believers out of the prospects of hell. So hell serves an eternal purpose to magnify the attributes, the character and the majesty of the one true God. Hell is purposeful. So much for the problem of evil. And finally, hell is deserved. I can't find, I'm still looking. I have been scouring the Bible to find a verse that says that before the foundation of the world, God predestined unbelievers to go to hell. Now, the Bible does says that God predestined the elect to be saved. But the corollary is not explicitly taught and stated in that same way. It's not. You can't find it. John chapter 3, after John 3.16, it says... Uh, that people are judged because they do not believe in Jesus. And that's why they go to hell. The wages of death is sin. So why do people go to hell? Because of unforgiven sin and because of rejecting willfully, intentionally, knowingly the provision of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They are accountable. That's why people go to hell. It's not out of ignorance. It's not because God is mean. So there is accountability on the human part. That's always what is communicated in Scripture. Very important to understand that. And this is sobering. This is scary. This should be a motive for you as a Christian. If you know anybody that is not a Christian, to be praying fervently for their salvation and to motivate you to share the truth of the gospel, even if it's just a seed at a time, one little seed, one little truth, even your test, whatever it is, a truth of God always being planted out so God can use that and woo people to himself and save sinners. He's a saving God. And he's chosen to use us. So that is the last Sobering warning that God extends. And then finally, number three, uh, 12 and 13, a special blessing for tribulation martyrs. And their special blessing is eternal rest from hardship. 12 and 13, uh, here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And this, uh, the saints are specifically referring to believers during the time of the tribulation who are undergoing uh, persecution from the Antichrist, Satan, and the false prophet. It's going to be horrific. But the saints, they need to persevere. They need to persevere in their faith, trusting God day to day in the midst of the persecution and rejection, even pain, even death, and trusting their souls to God. And if they are true believers, they will persevere. God will guarantee it. So here's the perseverance of the saints to keep on persevering, trusting in Christ, knowing that the end will come. The end will come in glory, too, by the rescue of Jesus perseverance of the saints the saints that's the holy ones if you're a believer you're a holy one you've been forgiven of all of your sin you have the holy spirit living in you You, as god looks down on you and you're a real believer he sees you as perfectly holy in christ isn't that awesome regardless of what your friends think about you your family members think about you strangers think about you if you're a christian jesus looks at you you are holy sinless pure Perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And by the way, you can't keep the commandments of God unless you first have faith in Jesus. Verse 12, verse 13, I heard a voice. So this is a special promise encouragement to people who will be killed during the tribulation to encourage their hearts, to press on, to see the big picture, to see the final reward. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, John, keep writing this down. Because you can imagine John with his, you know, parchment or his animal skin and he's he's seeing all this and his mouth is hanging open his tongue is on the floor wow cool john keep oh yeah keep writing right especially this don't miss this john blessed makarios blessed that's the 
Same word used in the Beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Do you know there are seven blessings in Revelation? Makarios, the seven blessings. It's not a coincidence that there's seven. The fullness of blessing is found in the book of Revelation. And here's one of those blessings. And the word Makarios specifically is used in the New Testament for uh, obedience now that is rewarded later in the future when you leave this earth. It's not blessing now. It's in the future when you get to heaven. So it's not instant gratification. It's, it's delayed satisfaction and fulfillment. Those are two worldviews that are contrary to one another. And this blessing is for the future. Blessed are you because you persecute. Blessed are the dead, those who die in the tribulation. Blessed are those who uh, are dead in the Lord. They got persecuted and they died because of their faith in Jesus in the tribulation. But as soon as they die, boom, they are catapulted into the glories of heaven in the presence of Jesus. Where is heaven? In the presence of Jesus. Isn't that? That's paradise. And that's where they go. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, in the tribulation, at the end, there's a special blessing for martyrs. We're going to see that in Revelation 20. Yes, says the Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks up, which is very rare that He does. But the Holy Spirit speaks up here. Yes, they do indeed. They get blessed that they may rest from their labors. That's one of the, the great blessings of heaven is its rest. It is eternal rest. It is a blessed rest. It is a blessed peace that goes with that. No worries, no anxiety. Can you imagine? Just perfect peace and rest. That's what heaven is like, and that's why heaven ain't on earth right now. Because we've got plenty to worry about, don't we? Plenty to worry about. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and not only that, their deeds will follow them. They're going to be rewarded with very specific rewards in heaven because of their faithfulness, obedience, and ministry while they lived on earth serving Jesus Christ as the Master. And you know what? That's true also of us as we look forward to heaven. We enter heaven because of our faith in Jesus. He's going to give us perfect rest and our works, our deeds will follow us by virtue of rewards that Christ will entrust to us. Glorious, great truth. Let's pray to the Father and thank Him for these things we've been able to learn together. Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Day and the time we have to look to Your Word. And Revelation is a, a very fascinating book, God, but we know it's true, uh, it's different, and a challenge. Continue to help us with your Holy Spirit, that he would be our ultimate teacher uh, to see the truths in Revelation and also to help us apply them in a practical way. And God, thank you for instructing our worldview of how we view the future, how the world is going to end. We don't need to be in a panic. You are totally in control. There is a plan. It ends in glory. Jesus reigns forever. And those of us that know him get to do as well. God, thank you for that great privilege. Thank you for your love. We commit this day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.